As the kids are being dismissed, let me invite you and take your copy of God's Word and go to back to Mark's Gospel. Appreciate the music team and all their work. May, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy doing the worship? Yeah, good. Okay. There's a story behind that. In Sunday school, I was trying to get Maddie to answer a question and speak up, and she's like, nope, I can do it. And afterwards, I'm like, man, I'm trying to get you to talk, and she's like, well, yeah, who won that battle? I said, you forget, I get a microphone every Sunday. So anyway, that's great. No, I do appreciate the music team. That is a lot of work, and I'm very grateful for that. Um... Before I dive in uh, to Mark chapter 6, kind of a funny story, just want to share it with you. It really has nothing to do with much of anything, but um, almost every Sunday, my son, my four-year-old son, asks me, Dad, are you wearing a tie today? And I always say, no, okay, because I've stopped wearing ties a long time ago, and you know, only basically for weddings, funerals, and Easter, you know, pretty much. And uh, so last Sunday, I told him, or was, you know, leading up to Sunday, I'm like, hey, I'm going to wear a tie on Sunday, because he, he always wants to wear a tie every Sunday. He, just, he dresses himself, by the way, if you didn't know. Um, he loves wearing ties and things like that. So um, he's like, great. Well, last Sunday, he was sick, and he couldn't come to church, okay? And he was so bummed. He's like, but we were going to wear ties together, Dad. And so I promised him last week, I said, I'll wear a tie next week, okay? So that's why I got a tie on, you know, for my son, okay? The opening illustration I have here is uh, that, you know, sometimes we're called to do hard things, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, but, you know, wearing a tie isn't that hard or anything like that. But that's actually a, a study that, uh, it's a book that the, the junior high, senior high guys and I are, are going through on Wednesday nights. Um, we're reading a book. It's called Do Hard Things. And, and you know, the, the book is a, is a small part of it. But I, I told them my goal is to challenge them to think deeper about things and issues that they're already thinking about. Okay. And, but the premise of the book is that we, sometimes uh, we like to just skate by in life. And, and particularly, there's a one chapter in the book it calls um, The Myth of Adolescence. Okay? And basically what they're talking about is for teenagers today, uh, there's, there's horribly low expectations. Um, and that we actually should be expecting more than what we are um, out of that age bracket. But um, so we're talking about that. We're talking about, okay, what is the hard thing to do in life and things like that. And, and I was trying to think through some of the things in my life, some difficult things that, that you know, I've had to do or, and, you know, I, I was thinking about one time when I looked at a project at the house and I thought, I can do that. And it was a ceiling fan. Has anyone ever put up a ceiling fan? Okay, put up a ceiling fan. Okay, all right. I couldn't do it. 
okay? It was, I, I was going to lose my salvation, okay, in the process of, now I don't believe you can, just, just, just so you know, but I was getting so frustrated, and, and you know, Anuk and I, we were married, this wasn't a ceiling fan, this was a dishwasher, but um, we were married for, this is Rhode Island, not very long at all, you know, maybe two years, about-ish, um, maybe not even, I don't know, but anyway, and, you know, one of the reasons why Anuk loves me so much and married me is because I'm just such a nice guy. And, uh, right? Okay, sure. And uh, just go with it. You're killing my illustration if you say no. So, no, but, but, but I remember one time in, in, I'm, I'm working on this dishwasher and um, it was, you, you, you're trying to do this body contortion thing behind it, and you're, you're making the, the adjustments, and they have this co- uh, copper tubing that I found out you can only bend so far, okay, before then it kinks, and then you got to cut it, and you hope you have enough, and all this and everything, and at one point, my wife was walking down the steps, because it was a weird house. The kitchen was in the basement, kind of like it was kind of weird. But anyway, so, so she comes down, and she was going to ask how it was going. Well, I didn't hear her coming down the steps. And in a moment of frustration, a pair of vice grips went boom, flying across the, 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 the room just as the nook was coming down the steps, and it hits the wall. And the nook says, well, I was going to ask how it's going. <laughs> It was a really difficult thing for me to, to, to keep my composure and anger in that moment because it just wasn't working. Of course, it was wrong. I'd apologize and all that stuff. You know, the, the life is difficult at times. The projects that we're asked to do are difficult. And of course, you look at that and you're like ceiling fans and dishwashers and things like that. You know, okay, get over it, Jeremy. And, 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 and I did, you know. But you know, when I looked at the disciples here, in this chapter, I was thinking about the difficulty of being a Christ follower. I'm going to walk through this, okay? And so if you're taking notes, that's the first point, the difficulty for the Christ follower. I just want to walk us through this a little bit here this morning. First of all, we have in verse 7, I already read this section, that he, he tells him to go out and he says, don't take anything with you. And then he talks about that you're going to stay in people's houses and things like that. That's, uh, incidentally, that's the reason why he says not to put on two tunics there, because the, the outer tunic would have been for shelter and for uh, sleeping and things like that. And he's saying, don't even, don't even take you know, a covering for sleeping at night. Don't even do that when you go out there. And so they go out, and, and they're proclaiming that people should repent. That's verse 12. Verse 13, they're casting out demons. Things are going great. But then it's verse 14, all the way down through 29, Mark inserts this time, this narrative of, of John the Baptist's death and talks about how, why he died, why he was beheaded. It was, it was because you know, Herod had put him in prison. It was a political move. His wife uh, was uh, really upset with John the Baptist because it was an illegitimate marriage. It was actually an incestuous marriage. It was, uh, uh, he married his brother's wife, who was also a family relative. And so it was all sorts of things. And John the Baptist says, you guys cannot do this. The wife gets upset. And so because of her, he puts John the Baptist in prison. He kind of likes John the Baptist. He, he likes hearing about him for some reason. I think he was probably just intrigued by him. Later on, and we're not going to take time to read the narrative, but uh, at a party that he hosts, 
the daughter the, uh, of his wife you know, dances before him. Obviously, probably in a very sexual manner. He's pleased with this. And so he's like, hey, I'll give you anything you want. And so she goes to her mom and says, what should I ask? And her mom says, you need to ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so that's what she does. And this is how John the Baptist is killed. So Mark kind of throws this in here. Then he picks up the narrative again in verse 30 when they return to Jesus. And so they return to Jesus. They tell him what they have been experiencing of casting out demons and things like that. And Jesus responds to them. He says, I want you to go away. I want you to get some rest because you don't have time to eat. This leads into the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which then leads into the story of walking on the water. Now, as I'm looking at this and I'm trying to figure out why would Mark include all these things? Why would Mark put all these stories together? And there's kind of a motif that goes through each of this, and it has to deal with food and sustenance and bread. Because in the beginning, he's, they're told not to bring any bread. They're told not to bring anything with them. And then it moves into this idea of the feeding of 5,000. And then at the end, at the walking on the water account, look at verse um, 51, it says, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. So Mark brings it back to this bread and, and food motif that's going through this section here. So we got to kind of dive into this a little bit and see what's going on. I said that it's difficult for the Christ follower, and I see this pattern coming up. First of all, it's difficult for the Christ follower because the strategy often is counterintuitive. Okay, the strategy seems counterintuitive. When Jesus tells the disciples to go out, he tells them to not take any food with them, not to take any, any uh, provisions with them. I told you about the tunic, and uh, the only thing they're supposed to take with them is the staff. And they're not even supposed to plan ahead where they're going to stay. They're supposed to depend upon the hospitality of people along the way. Now, if you and I are engaging upon a mission, okay, this seems counterintuitive of saying, hey, look, we're not going to take any money with us. It, it, okay, if, if, if um, we say we're going to do this missions uh, trip and we're going to organize this and we want people to come along with us, our church is going on a missions trip to, you know, we'll say the, you know, Zaire. I don't know. So we're going to Zaire. And so we're going to have an informational meeting about this missions trip. And so you all come because you want to go on this missions trip. And you say, what's the plan? And I said, well, here's the deal. No one can pack any luggage at all, okay? You can't bring any clothes with you at all. Not even the extra. You can't even layer your clothes, okay? You can just have one outfit. You can't bring any money with you. No money at all. And we're not going to bring any food at all, okay? This is going to be a good trip. Who's in? All right? It just seems so counterintuitive. I mean, if, if we forget our cell phone on the way to Walmart, we turn around for it, okay? So this idea of going on a journey without provision seems odd to us. But this is what God's told them to do. And, and, and by extension, now, this is, this is for this. You know, he's not saying that any trip we go on, we don't take money or things like that. But what he is saying is that we don't put our hope in those things, Okay? And so it seems counterintuitive for the mission of what Jesus is saying. And so it's difficult for the Christ follower there. It's also difficult for the Christ follower because the possibility of rejection is real. I mean, did you see this in verse uh, uh, 11? And if any place will not receive you. 
Think about that, how encouraging that would have been. Okay, you're not going to have to worry about where you're going to stay because you're going to depend upon the hospitality of other people and you're going to stay in their homes. But if people don't let you stay, here's what you do. You shake the dust off your feet and you move on. The possibility of rejection is real. And that also is the reason why I believe Mark inserts the story of John the Baptist beheading at this point. I mean, think about this. That event may have cut off the disciples' ministry there. This was the, the possibility of rejection was huge at this point and that they could have lost their lives over this. You know, for you and for me, if we're trying to follow Jesus Christ, the possibility of rejection is very real. And often that's what cripples us, is it not? It's often the things that is that fear of rejection, fear of what people are going to say, fear of how people are going to think about us, that keeps us silent or keeps us from doing the mission that we are called to do. And those are real. Who likes to be rejected? Who likes to have those things? No one. And so the fear of rejection is real. But also, I think that there's a, there's a third reason why it's so difficult for the, Christ, for the Christ follower, and that is because the work is exhausting. Did you notice in verse 30, it says, the, 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 the disciples returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus responds to them, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. For, here's the reason why Jesus said that, many were coming and going and they had no leisure to even they, they were so busy helping people and so busy ministering to people and they were so busy doing things for people that they were actually physically exhausted. They were so tired. And in the ministry of, of, of being a Christ follower, if you're truly going to be an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to get tired. It's going to be exhausting at times. And then even this, when you do take time for rest, like Jesus says, look at this. So they go to a desolate place by themselves, verse 32. Verse 33, while they're trying to rest, keep in mind, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore to the great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and began to teach them many things. And his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So while the disciples are trying to get some rest, while they're trying to get some uh, rejuvenation from the exhausting work that they had been doing, the people still meet them. There's more needs, and there's more needs. And then Jesus begins to teach them, and what are they doing? They're, they're ministering with the congregation, with the crowd that had gathered there on that hill, and it's tiring. It gets late, and so they're saying they need to go home so they can get something to eat there. It's exhausting work. Maybe you feel tired as a Christ follower. Maybe you know the commands that you need to obey, and maybe you know the life that you're supposed to live, and you know the duties that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to make disciples, right? But yet, the Christian life is tiring. And maybe it's like just the time where you're like, okay, I'm going to be able to prop my feet up just for a couple minutes here. I'm just going to take in a breath, and then the phone rings, or the text message comes in, or there's an email, or someone says, hey, do you have a minute to talk? And you say, of course, because you want to serve them. But you're tired. You're exhausted at times. It's difficult being a Christ follower. I get it. 
And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to paint the picture and just show you what are the disciples feeling in this moment? Because we're going to read something about the disciples here in a minute that if we don't get all this, we're going to misunderstand it. But here they are, they've, they've been in a ministry that's counterintuitive, they've, they've had a real possibility of rejection, they've, had, uh, they've seen one of their friends and heroes die, they're exhausted here. The work is exhausting, it's difficult, but also it's difficult because the job that we're called to do seems impossible. Look at this. In verse 36, it says, They said to Jesus, Send them away to go into the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. You do it. And it's emphatic. It's like basically saying, no, this is your job. You're supposed to feed them right now. As, as they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, hey, you got to send them away because it's late. They need to eat. Um, they're probably getting cranky. Um, and, and so you got to send them away. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, you feed them. I mean, think about the thoughts that go through their mind. Well, thankfully, we have them written down a little bit. It says, and they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That was like eight months of wages there, of what he's saying there. He's saying, should we go give, like, even if we had eight months of salary, we couldn't buy enough bread for everyone here. We couldn't buy enough for them to eat. How, you're telling us to do this. How in the I can't do this. You know, being a Christ follower and trying to be an obedient follower of Christ and someone who makes disciples, the job often seems impossible because we're tasked to do something that we have really no control over. I, I, I can't control anyone else's heart. And so if I'm giving the gospel to someone and I'm trying to make them and trying to help them grow in their spiritual life or anything like that, I have no ability to make them receive the teaching of God's word. I have no ability to turn their hearts towards God. I have no ability to do that. But yet I'm told to do that. I'm told to make disciples and I'm told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And and on one hand, it's liberating to know that we aren't responsible for the results. But at the same time, we know that the Bible says in John chapter 14 and John 16, John 15, it talks about having this idea of bearing fruit and that there would be fruit there. So we long to see people accept Christ and we long to see people follow Jesus Christ and we long to see people grow in, in their spiritual pilgrimage. But we have no ability to act actually do that. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is difficult because the job seems impossible. When Jesus looked at them and said, you feed them. I think there's a play going on here. I think Jesus is building up and trying to teach them something that we're going to get to in just a minute here. But it's not just difficult because the strategy seems counterintuitive or the possibility of rejection is real or that the, the work is exhausting or the job seems impossible, but also it's difficult because there never seems to be a break. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus feeds the 5,000, does it in a miraculous manner. There's so much food left over, 12 baskets are there. And then he makes the disciples get into the boat to go into the other side. And as he does this, verse 46, and he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray, and when evening came, the boat was out to sea, was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. 
And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, okay, so this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., okay? That's the fourth watch of the night, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, or he was pretending like he was just going to walk past them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. This storm could not come at a seemingly worse time for the disciples. They're already tired. We saw that from before, right? Remember, they didn't have time to eat, the Bible says. So Jesus tells them to go to rest. So they go to rest, and what happens? The people meet him there, and so they all get right back to work. They get right back to work, and then there's all these people, so they suggest to Jesus that he lets them go so they can eat, and they can get to that rest. Jesus then turns around and says, no, you feed them. And so he says, okay, we're going to do this. And so then after the feeding of 5,000 is done, then they finally get into the boat. So Jesus lets them go, and so they go, and he makes them get into the boat. And what happens? They spend the rest of the night and in the early hours of the morning, rowing against the wind that was in the wrong way. If I'm Peter, if I'm Andrew, if I'm Simon, at that point, I'm just begging God to turn the wind around so that I can not have to row so hard because I'm exhausted. And this storm, it just, I can't take another thing, God. I can't take it. I'm tired. I'm imagining what these disciples are saying right now. And yet, Jesus has a plan in all of this. So that's a difficulty that I see in the disciples of being a Christ follower. It's a great picture, right? Encouraging picture. But difficulty is not the danger. Here's what I want us to get this morning. You see, the danger that the Christ, of being a Christ follower is not no rest or counterintuitive strategies or things like this. But the danger... And I think this is the point, is losing the awe of God as we follow him. Losing awe of God. Now you say, where are you getting this from, Jeremy? Well, I want you to look back. Look what happens. He calls 12, verse 7, calls them out, gives them authority over unclean spirits. He puts some kind of crazy um, restrictions on their, their journeys. In verse 13, look at this. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Man, that's, that's some incredible things that are happening there. But, but look at verse 30. It says, they returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. There's, there's no emotion in that. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's an argument from silence. Well, in Luke chapter 10, if we were to take time to turn there, when Jesus sends the 70 out, and it's a very similar sending out, as he gets authority over and all this stuff, the Bible is very clear. It says they returned with joy. Okay, and so we don't get that here. Now, it could be that they had some joy, but, but we don't get that here. And there's a reason why I think that they were joyless in this moment. And we get there. And then we get to the feet of the 5,000, and they're tired, and Jesus says, I want you to go do this, and I want, I want you to do this. And I think Jesus is basically saying there, hey, look, you got to realize you can't do this in your own strength. you gotta, I got to prove to you that, that I'm the one that's going to do this for you, but I'm going to show you that you can't do this anymore. And then the walking of the water comes and they're absolutely terrified because they thought he was a ghost. They didn't even recognize Jesus. They say, how is all this possible? And I'd already read it in verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
I, I think that that's the key right there, that what, what um, uh, Mark is trying to get us to understand. He's trying to get us to understand that it is possible to be working for God. It's possible to be a follower of Jesus Christ and become bored with God. It's possible to, to be in, in service of God and see him do some things there and then not move us anymore. It's possible for them to, to be there and we're seeing things happen and yet because they're so tired, that's the only thing they can think about. And because the need seems so great, they lose the awe. In fact, when you read the accounts of the, of the feeding of 5,000 in the other Gospels, in some of them we see, and this is in John's particularly, John's rendering of this, he talks about how that when he fed the 5,000, the crowd responded with awe and amazement. And they said, this is the prophet that's come into the world. John records that it was the crowds that were amazed by this, but there's no word on the disciples being in awe. Because they got used to Jesus doing things. They had gotten used to God doing awesome things, and it no longer moved them. And it wasn't until they thought they were going to die that they were awakened out of their boredom. And so what I want us to consider today, I want us to consider today, are we in danger of becoming bored with God? When was the last time we were just moved by God doing something, even something small? How many times do we just take it for granted of what God has done for us? When we're, when we're tempted to complain about our job, think about that for a second. Unless you've gone through a time in your life where you've searched for work and couldn't find it, you don't understand the blessing of even having a job you don't like is. I remember when the economy in 2008, that downturn in the economy 2000, 2008 hit different communities harder than other communities. We lived in Rockford at the time, and Rockford got hit very hard with that. We had a lot of people relocate out of the area from our church and, and looking for work. But the Detroit area was hit very, very hard. And my parents live in Detroit, as many of you know, and my dad ended up getting laid off from his job. And he looked for work, and it, it, it was almost two years, I remember, of him looking for a job looking for a job, looking for a job, asking God to give him a job. And I remember thinking, you know, there's so many times where we complain about our job. We complain about what God has called us to do. We complain about these things. But the reality is, is that that is a means that God has given to us as a gift. How many times do we just see the gifts that God has given to us and we just, we, we, we lose the awe of it? You know, when something's new, we tend to notice all the, the, the nuances of it so much more. That maybe you, maybe you are moving to a new location, and so you're, you're driving to the grocery store, you're driving to a meeting or something like that, and you're seeing the beauty around you for the first time, and, and, or maybe you're visiting an area for the first time, and, and, and you're trying to keep your eyes on the road, but you're trying to see well, all what's around you because it's so beautiful, and you almost wish a red light would come so you can stop and so you can look around and you, so you can take in the beauty of it. 
Well, then you're there for a couple months. And then what happens? You're like saying, oh, red light, because I just want to get where I'm going. And you're missing everything that's there because it's become expected. And I wonder if because sometimes we've experienced the blessing of following Christ for so long that we can actually miss the wonder of it at times. See, I've told you about the difficulty for the Christ follower and the danger for the Christ follower, but let me just share with you the reality here. Here's the reality for the Christ follower. Back in chapter 6, When Jesus sends out those apostles, he sends the disciples out two by two. He gives them authority over the unclean spirits. He charges them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. What the reality there in that moment is, is that God provided for them. And if you're a Christ follower, the reality is that God is providing for you every day. Every day, God is providing for you. Sometimes we have to go through difficulties or we have to lose something in order to appreciate it. We have to lose our health for a while in order to appreciate it. But every day, God is giving you breath. God is keeping your heart beating. Don't take that for granted. Don't take it for granted that even the simplest thing of, hey, well, yeah, I'm alive today. Yes, and that is a gift from the Lord. Treat it as such. Treat this day as such that God has a plan for you. And be in awe that God is keeping your heart beating. Have you ever stopped to think about that for a minute? Have you ever stopped to think about, I have no control over this thing. I mean, it's just going and I have really zero control over it at all. I, I cannot make it stop. I can't make it keep going. I, I, I'm in complete dependence upon someone else for this thing to keep ticking. And when was the last time I was like, God, thank you for sustaining my life. Thank you for giving me yet another day to enjoy my wife and my children. Thank you that I have the opportunity to go out to a restaurant and most of us don't even think about that, but we do. And think about what a, what, a, what a great thing that is that we can go out and God's provided in such a way that we have access. And, and then he's provided so much that there's leftovers. When was the last time you're sitting down for a meal and it's like, oh, leftovers again? Think about what that means for a second. It means that the first meal was so much that you couldn't eat it at all. That's a blessing from the Lord. We complain about stuff so often, and when was the last time we were just in awe and saying, God, we're eating leftovers today because you gave us so much yesterday that we couldn't eat it all. Thank you. When was the last time we said, God, you, you've given us our children so they can fight with each other, and I can listen to it, and I can know how you feel with us. <laughs> right? When was the last time you just stopped and said, God, you have given us so much, more than I deserve? But you see, the problem is, is I think we deserve, I think we think we deserve what we have. They become demands, they become rights, they become things that we think we're entitled to. 
So the reality for the Christ follower is that God provides for you each day of your life, just like he was showing these people here in Mark chapter 6. And the reality also is that God protects you. And, and we saw this. And, and the reason why is, you know, King Herod had killed John the Baptist, but he had not, they did not kill these other disciples. Now later on, they're going to lose their lives, most of them. And so when I say God protects you, that doesn't mean that there's never going to be a time where something bad happens to you. That's not what God's protection is about. What I'm talking about God's protection there is that no one can thwart God's plan for your life. No one can influence or take your life a second sooner than when God himself says, okay, it's okay now. And so we can walk into the the harshest of conditions and we can walk into the most dangerous of of places with the gospel to give to people. And if God, if God himself says, you are not going to die today, you are not going to die today. If God himself says, you will be kept safe in the midst of bullets flying around you, you will walk safely through that. That is what I mean by God protecting us. He protects us in ways that we cannot even fathom. I believe, I believe that most of eternity are going to be us worshiping God because we're going to be learning of how God has interacted with our lives on this earth. And we're going to see, I can't believe that there was an angel coming. There was a fallen angel, a demon that was coming for us and was trying to attack us. And yet you stopped it, God. You say, that doesn't happen. No, no, read Daniel. Read Daniel. When, when the angel's coming and, and to Daniel, and he says, yeah, sorry I'm late, but, you know, I got hung up because this demon was trying to get you, and so, you know, we, we had to battle for a while, so sorry I'm late. It's in Daniel. When, when we see in Jude, it says, and the devil, he was contending over the body of Moses. No idea what that means. All I know is that there was a spiritual battle in some way that was involving the body of Moses. And yet God is supreme over that. He protects us. So we can have great confidence in our lives as we serve Jesus Christ because God is the one who is protecting us. That's the reality. And yeah, there's danger. Yeah, there's fear of rejection, and yeah, and we may have to suffer for Christ. We may have to get beat like my friends in India get beat for Christ. And we may even lose our lives for Christ. But that will only be if God says it. And not a second sooner or in any other circumstance. And if God is saying it, then he will give you the grace to endure that. And he will give you the grace to accept that. See, this is the reality for the Christ follower. God provides. He protects us. Also, I think that we need to understand is that he prioritizes rest. In verse 30, when Jesus tells him, go and rest a while. Now, it got interrupted. But that doesn't mean that, that doesn't take away the fact that Jesus was saying, you need to rest sometimes. And so the reality is, is while the spiritual or, or being a follower of Jesus Christ is tiring and it's exhausting at times, we do not have to feel guilty for resting. This is the whole reason why Jesus, uh, he, he rested on the seventh day, and it wasn't because he was tired. In fact, just last night, we're having family worship, and my daughter uh, says to me, you know, if, if God is, is all-powerful and he doesn't have to sleep, why did he rest on the seventh day? And my wife was like, that's a great question for your dad, okay? And so, and so, we, 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 so we, we talked about it. 
And what I said was, I said, well, the, the type of resting there doesn't necessarily mean physical exhaustion. It means that he was stopping to enjoy it. And so God prioritizes rest, and not just for the fact that you can sleep in, but he, he prioritizes rest so we can just stop and breathe in him. Amidst all the chaos of life, amidst all of everything that's going around and all the things that are happening here, God prioritizes for you to stop and say, let me just focus on God. This is one of the reasons why Sundays are often that day of rest we call, and it's not so that we never expend any energy or something like that. It's that we spend more extended time thinking about God. You come, you come to church, you sing songs, you, 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 you listen to a sermon, you interact with a sermon, all that for the point of being that you can rest and not necessarily sleep, although there's nothing wrong with that, but so you can rest and just say, okay, no more. I need to think about God. But see, the problem is, is that one, we try to do way too much with our lives. Okay, now, um, I told you, I've told you this many times, I preach sermons that I need to hear, okay? And so I'm preaching to myself here. You know, we, we, we try to pack our schedules too much. We, we try to do too many things. And, and honestly, one of the, the downsides of technology is that the promise of it is this will make your life so much easier. You can get your jobs done faster, and then you have time to, you know, go to, you know, Hawaii and your vacation or whatever. But the reality of what it is is that our technological advances are simply enabling us to do more work in the same amount of time. Because we keep adding stuff and we keep adding stuff and we keep adding stuff and pretty soon there's a breaking point. So what we need to remember, the reality is, is that God wants us to rest because he wants us to be in awe. We cannot be in awe if we are frantically living this life. Now, that may mean some of you have to rearrange your family schedules. That may mean some of you have to say no to some kids' activities and things because they're going every day of the week and just just no break. That may mean that you say no to some activities in the evenings that you would want to do a basketball league or bowling league or something like that. That may mean that you have to look as a family and say, okay, are we prioritizing rest in the sense of we need to take in God here? That is crucial to us and to our health, and to the health of the disciples. And, in, and if we are constantly, frantically going from one thing to the next, we will not have time for awe. And actually, we will get irritated by the things of God because it will become an intrusion. All of a sudden, ministering to someone else becomes an intrusion, and it becomes that, that plate that's beginning to wobble, and you got all the other ones spinning, and then that one falls, and you get irritated and frustrated, and so what do you do? You just don't even do that anymore, and you stop what we're doing because we're so busy in other things. See, the reality is that God prioritizes rest so that we can have awe. Another reality is that Jesus proves that he can do anything. Now, this is the feeding the 5,000. We're not going to develop it all. But here he says, you feed them. The people said, the disciple says, we can't. He says, I know. That's kind of the point here. And he says, make him sit down. And then he does a miracle here. He can do anything. The job that seems insurmountable, the job that seems impossible to handle or or to, to accomplish becomes possible when Jesus is the one that's doing it. And we're the ones serving Jesus in the process. 
And so let me encourage us this morning. Let me encourage you that that, that discipleship opportunity, that discipleship mandate, that, uh, that, that, that command to share the gospel with people, and it seems impossible or insurmountable because we, we just know that people don't want to hear it. It becomes possible when Jesus leads the way. And when we're praying and saying, God, show us opportunities, prepare the way ahead of us so that when we begin to share that these people are ready, help me to be obedient to you. And we're asking God rather than just saying, okay, I got to obey and so I'm just going to see the first person I see and say, hey, by the way, you need Jesus. And, you know, God bless you. Amen. I did my job. You know, that is not going to work. But Jesus, when he's the one, we're depending on him. He proves he can do anything. Even feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. So Jesus proves he can do anything. And finally, Jesus is praying for you and is always with you. This is the walking down the water part. Did you notice that when they were in the wind and the waves, where was Jesus? He was on the mountain praying. And then he looked up and he saw them, and so in the storm, and so he went to them. Take great comfort in that fact that whatever storm you find yourself in in this life, Jesus is praying for you and will come meet you in the middle of it. If that is not something to be in awe of, I don't know what it is. You know, sometimes I think, does God even care of what I'm going through? Does God even care? And the answer is, of course he does, because the Bible says that Jesus, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so whatever situation you find yourselves in right now, this very moment, you have an advocate. You have someone who is praying for you. And it's not necessarily your friends or your pastor, although they should be praying for you. But who it is that's praying for you is your Savior. That, God help us if that statement just causes us to go, huh. Never thought about that. Your Savior prays for you. Think about this. Not only did he go to the cross, not only did he die for you, not only did he rise again, but right now, he's praying for you and he will walk on the very thing that is causing you the the biggest trouble in your life. It will be underneath his feet and he will meet you right now. That is a God to be in awe of. So what I want us to do this week, if I can just give you some homework. Here's what I like to do is I like to say, and I wrestled with how to phrase this, and I settled on this, everyday awe, okay? Here's what I'd like you to do this week. I would like you to look every day for a way to be in awe of God each day this week. Now, I almost phrase this awe every day. But I switched to this way to say everyday awe because I want to underline the fact that it's even everyday things that should cause us to be in awe every day. So this is what I'd like you to do. You know, write down in your bulletin, do something, you know, take your phone out, send yourself a text, an email, whatever you got to do. Write down and just write everyday awe. And then what I'd like you to do is I'd like you just to think through this, this week what is it that 
I mean, how is it I should be in awe of God? How is he evident in my life? What am I seeing him doing? What do I see his creation? And I see all the things out there, and I see how he's interacting with us, and I see his power, and I see his provision. I see his protection. I see the fact that he is praying for me right now because he carried me through that, because I know that if he wasn't praying for me, I would have gone totally ballistic on that guy. And so I know that he's doing this. Whatever it is, whatever it is, take a journal for one week, every day off, Because my fear is that the greatest danger that we face is that we are unmoved by God and we get bored with God and we lose our awe of God. So let's take a minute and we're going to quietly pray. I just want you to take a minute and ask God to help you see him for who he is this week and that you would be in awe of him. Maybe you need, some of you are, are convicted by losing your all and becoming bored with God, you need to repent and ask God to forgive you. So take a minute, pray quietly, then I'll pray, and then we'll sing our closing song. Take a minute and quietly pray to the Lord. Father, forgive us for losing our awe of you. In some ways, I don't feel like I've even painted the picture well enough today, but this is where we're dependent upon your spirit and not upon one man's words. And so, Father, I, I pray that we would see you for who you are this week. It's so easy to get caught up in the stress of life and the details and the responsibilities of life where we forget to stop and breathe in your greatness. Awe of you is the oxygen for our soul. And I pray, Father, I pray that we would be able to stop this week and see you for how great you are. I pray that we would be moved as we behold your greatness. I pray you'd forgive us. You are God worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we fail to do that. So may today be a turning point. A turning point in each of our lives where when we leave today, we have a greater sense that we serve a truly awesome, in the truest sense of that word, an awesome God. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.